The menu, as you can imagine, is ridiculous. There's an absolute plethora of roast meats and soups and pies and gravies. There were thousands of diners, and one of the great spectacles of this event was when the King's Champion challenged all the diners effectively to a fight or a duel if they dared question the authority of the King. One of the things, though, that didn't go quite so to plan is after the King left, things really started to break down. Obviously, a lot of wine had been drunk, a lot of beer had been drunk. The people who had just been watching from above broke down and started helping themselves to the food. They were rather ravenous by that point, and they even started to take the table decorations and things as souvenirs. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of a Right Royal Podcast with me, Andrea. And me, Emmy. In this week's episode, we're talking all things festive and how the royals celebrate Christmas time in their own special way. While the family flocked to Sandringham for some Yuletide celebrations, we also visited some very popular royal haunts to find out more about how they have prepared for Christmas this year. Yes, we have visited some stunning properties, including the King's very own home, Windsor Castle, where we spoke to Sally Goodsir, Curator of Decorative Arts, and Catherine Jones, Senior Curator of Decorative Arts at the Royal Collection Trust. We also went over to the Tower of London, where we spent some time with Curator and Public Historian at Historic Royal Palaces, Charles Farris. We'll also be looking back at the standout royal moments of 2023. Most of which we have discussed on this podcast. Yes. But first, we can't kick off the show without the angel on top of our Christmas tree, Emily Nash. (laughs) (laughs) Before we chat to Emily, shall we have a festive word from our sponsor? Well, as you know, here at Hello, we love all things royal. And our sponsor today has as much love and dedication to the royals as we do, offering a wide variety of fascinating, high-quality documentaries and analysis. True Royalty TV is an on-demand service that allows you to watch hundreds of regally-themed titles about royalty through the ages and around the world. Now, as we know, Christmas is a very special time for the royals, with the palace making extensive preparations for the family's festive get-together. If you're looking for a new series to watch with your family this Christmas, True Royalty TV's Secrets of the Palace is a must-watch for royal lovers, divulging an intriguing behind-the-scenes look at the British royal residences, as well as other royal palaces from around the world. Luckily for our Right Royal listeners, True Royalty TV are offering a very special offer of a three-month subscription for the price of one. To receive this amazing deal, all you need to do is visit trueroyalty.tv forward slash hello to sign up today. Thank you so much to True Royalty TV for sponsoring this episode. The platform is available in all major app stores and streaming platforms. Now back to you, Emily. Who is fresh from attending the most special carol service hosted by the Princess of Wales. Hi, Emily. Hello. How was it? It was amazing. Thank you. It was a real treat to attend. And it's the third one I've been lucky enough to go along to now. And it really sets the scene for the run-up to Christmas so beautifully. It's such a wonderful scene. It's such a wonderful venue. And... Everyone taking part just clearly loved it. Seeing as it's the third time you've gone, has it elevated like every year? Has it just been bigger and better? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's always going to be really special when you have members of the royal family hosting in such a historic venue as Westminster Abbey. But I feel like there's an expectation there now as well. So there was a lot of excitement. I was really excited about going in and seeing guests turning up 
all smartly lots dressed. Lots of celebs. Lots of celebs, lots of famous faces. And people just clearly delighted to be part of it. It really felt oh. pretty magical. Did you get close to the Princess of Wales? I didn't, no. She was rightly up at the front with her children. And I'm sure focusing quite hard on making sure they were behaving themselves. Were they <laughs> in the best behaviour? As far as we could see, yeah. I mean, there's always a lovely moment in these situations where Charlotte appears to be pointing things out to the boys. And that definitely happened. I did see her pointing something out in the order of service to Louis at one point. But he, you know, I've got to say, at five years old... He's definitely mastered the art of sitting through a service at Westminster Abbey. And not looking bored. And not looking bored. Because <laughs> kids I mean, at that age are so was, difficult. He was a bit excitable when it came to blowing out the candles, yeah. as you may have seen on our website earlier this week. But they did really well. And actually, it's a great service. And this one in particular was all about early years and early childhood. So... I think a lot of it was aimed at the children, like the Christmas trees inside the Abbey were all cut from Windsor Great Park, but they were decorated with little teddy bears, little handmade paper decorations, everything, of course, very sustainable, environmentally friendly, but it had a real childhood theme to it this year. Oh, that's so lovely. So we weren't treated to Kate playing the piano this year. She did that last year. So what was the standout performance? That's a really good question. There were superb performances all the way through it. But for me, probably the most poignant performance was Jacob Collier, who gave this beautiful rendition of Last Christmas, obviously we all know, made famous by George Michael and Wham, on a piano that George Michael had owned and had previously been owned by John Lennon. So there was this little musical history unfolding in front of us. And I have got to say, Roman Kemp was there with his mum Shirley, who was obviously a bandmate of George Michael, And at one point, you could really see how moved she was by this. And it just felt, I mean, like that song evokes so many Christmas memories for all of us. Yeah. And to hear it in Westminster Abbey, first of all, was quite a novel thing. (laughs) But then to have all this musical history as well, that was really, really special. Iconic. That sounds amazing. And I can't imagine how stressful it must have been for Kate in the run-up to organise such a big event. She's inviting all these friends that she has history with Roman Kem and then, you know, Giovanna Fletcher, she's got history and Fern Cotton, all these people. And it must be such a relief to get that over and done with. I mean, I'd say so. But she just seems to take it in her stride. She looked like she was having a brilliant time. She spent a lot of time chatting to the performers. I know she did say to Jacob Collier that Charlotte's playing the piano and they had a bit of a chat about that. And we've heard a bit more about that recently as well, haven't we, about the need to practice. So she just seems to take it in her stride. The kids did brilliantly. And everyone who was there, obviously most guests had a connection to her earlier's work. That was really the theme this year. So we saw a lot of the people she's interacted with over the course of this year. So I felt like she felt at home there. It was a big week for them. And we loved obviously seeing the Waleses together. And then after that incredible event, one day after we got the most adorable Christmas card. Tell us, what were your thoughts when you saw it? Well, I was surprised and delighted, of course, because it's a really beautiful photograph. But it struck me immediately that it's not your traditional festive card. Mm. Actually, that's something that William and Kate don't particularly do, as we've seen over previous years. But for me, what was really poignant about it is that it looked a bit like a portrait of William as a child taken by Lord Snowden, who was, of course, the Queen's former brother-in-law, married to Princess Margaret. And it showed William sitting in a wooden seat, much like Charlotte is in the current photograph, against that grainy 
black and white backdrop. But he's sitting there alone, holding his pet rabbit and looking quite sad. And so to see it come full circle and have him standing there with this huge smile on his face, his beautiful wife and his three children... In that same setup, I just thought... Oh, it was just all, all I'm missing. told a story, <laughs> yeah. I have a question, though. Where is Prince Louis' missing finger? Did no, you, did you no, hear about this? no, no. There is, no, it, there's no Photoshop fail. No, I, he's got his, it's a trick of the light. Yeah, it's a he's trick got of the his, light. his fingers really wide open and you can see the white in between the fingers. It's just an awkward... Position. Gotcha. See, yeah. this is this is why, dear listeners, you should not get your royal news from no. TikTok. I've, yes, I've stumbled onto a conspiracy theory <laughs> rabbit hole. A royal news one hundred and one, right there. Thank you, Emmy. <laughs> so that's not the only Christmas card we saw. No, indeed, we saw the king and queens, which rightly in the coronation year shows them with their crowns on. It's a familiar image, one that we yeah. saw from Hugo Bernand earlier this year. But you know, a nice reminder in case anyone had forgotten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we haven't. We had this small occasion back in May. Princess Anne popped up as well. Yes, Princess Anne, um, a photo of her and her husband, Sir Timothy Lawrence. That's quite nice, isn't it? I do like Princess Anne. It's very cute and apparently she sends it to all the charities that she's associated with. So one of them posted it on Facebook and it's absolutely adorable. Well, she's going to need to sign a lot of cards because she's a very, very busy woman. (laughs) Very busy. Has she won this year's Busiest Royal? Has Has she won again? Yes, no doubt. 450 engagements. Ooh, what? That's a lot. That's sometimes a day. That's every day and sometimes a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. She's busy. Her diary is extraordinary. But I think it's kind of difficult to compare like for like when you look at these engagements. It's always worth bearing that in mind. I mean... Her and the now king have always been sort of neck and neck. And I think there's a bit of healthy competition there between them. (laughs) But let's not forget that this year he's been doing his red boxes every day. He's dealing with matters of state for the first time. So his diary doesn't look like it has done in the past. And then similarly, you know, there are going to be critics out there who say William and Kate aren't doing enough because by numbers it looks a lot less. But the type of engagements they're doing are very different They're much more interested in longer term projects Mm. and having a longer term impact rather than just spreading themselves quite thinly. Nothing wrong with that at all, because I know that people who have Princess Anne as their patron in terms of charities value her input so, so much. But it's just a different style of doing things. So I think you always have to bear that in mind when you're comparing They do have numbers. three young children as well. They serve, yes, exactly. And children, are, they're grown up, they're fine. They do. <laughs> I mean, if you factor in all the childcare arrangements and going to school plays and sports days and all that kind of thing, I think they'd uh, notch up quite a few more. Now, talking about these engagements, obviously there are things that happen behind the scenes that we don't see, and that includes the incredible visit that Kate recently made to a baby bank with her three kids. And I like to think, somewhat inspired by Hello's campaign last Last year year. to raise money for baby banks. If only... They had done a video for us last year. I know. (laughs) And if listeners need to double check about Louis' fingers, you can see them in the video. There's all 10. (laughs) All 10 of them. Yes, all 10 fingers. (laughs) Fully in action. This is such a brilliant way to encapsulate what she's trying to get across with the early years. You know, it's not just about a few volunteers doing their very best to help. It's about everyone getting involved, even her own children. Mm. And again, it really echoes something from Diana's era, which is involving the children in charity work and making them aware of life beyond palace walls. I think that's so important. Being able to relate to people 
who don't live in the same circumstances as you. And what a brilliant way to introduce the children to that because they're learning empathy for kids the same age as them. They're thinking about what other kids would like, what toys they like to play with. And they're getting their heads around the idea that for some children, that's not something that just happens. They have to rely on the goodwill of other people. And I felt inspired by it. I felt like I needed to get yeah. my kids out to do something as well. I think it was really moving. I thought it was a great video. And, you know, we were talking about what we're seeing next year. And I said, George, maybe doing a little bit more. Hearing them just chatting to each other a little bit was just like, oh, wow. It's like, you've seen them, but you haven't really heard them. It's yeah. funny because our listeners, we actually had this chat the other day. We were just talking between us three and we actually have had a royal chat. And we were saying how we wanted to see more behind the scenes moments. And you said you wanted to see more of George. Yeah. And literally, it's like someone was listening. It all, it, <laughs> someone. And it's it all happened all your the, Christmas the same wishes week. come true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It just all happened. It was Santa. It was listen, listen, manifest. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> manifest <laughs> it happens and also for me you know I'm loving Charlotte pulling out the little baby vest with the Welsh flag on I know getting so excited she said this is Welsh the look that she shares with her mum is hilarious they're like you know, when you very go, cute, yes, very I cute. It. You know what I really like about that as well is that they're obviously being taught about Welsh history. And for you, Emily, as a Welsh woman, was that yes. actually really nice? I thought it was really sweet. I mean, look, it's a very small thing, but it's good that they have that awareness of different nations within the home nations, and they are learning about they that relationship between the crown and. Yeah. I mean, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, George will be the Prince of Wales one day. Surely they'll So he needs to crack all, on. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Charles learned it, didn't he? Has William, do we know? Well, he's William is trying. So he is trying. When he goes on engagements in Wales, he's definitely dropping in a shemai and using a few phrases here and there. But he's the first to admit that he needs to practice yeah. a little bit. <laughs> now, let's go back to Christmas because a lot has happened in the run-up, but a lot is happening. So tell us, what is coming up for the royal family? Well, as we're recording today, they are still carrying out those end-of-term classics, you know, Christmas concerts, carol services, things like that. And then in the run-up to Christmas, the king will host a lunch for the extended royal family. And this is usually up to about 70 people. I wow. love this Traditionally, yeah. Traditionally, it's been at Buckingham Palace and you occasionally get car shots, you yes. know, people arriving yep. for this. But it's not just the king and his siblings, it's his cousins, Lady Sarah Chatto, Lord Snowden. The Tyndalls and the kids and all, yeah, everyone. All of, all of these people. Lord so, and Lady Frederick Windsor. Yes. So you get this fantastic turnout of royals. Now... Last year it was held at Windsor and we're not particularly sure why, although I suspect it has something to do with the resurfacing of Buckingham Palace. So at the time of recording, we're eagerly awaiting more information on, on that. On the location or an invite if it has to go. Or car photos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's that. And then, of course, the big one. And yeah. that's Sandringham at Christmas. And... I mean, that's a set piece that has been going for such a long time now. They've been going to Sandringham since the 80s. And we've come to expect that little walk from the big house, as they call it, down to St. Mary Magdalene Church at Sandringham on Christmas Day. Of course, for a lot of the royals, that's actually their second church service of the day. Some of the eager beavers are yes. down there for the early morning one. But it's the second service, the 11am one, where people come along to stand outside and wish members of the royal family a, a happy Christmas. We've seen the children getting involved in the last few years, which is lovely. And it's now as much a part of Christmas Day as the King's speeches. Oh my God, I loved it last year. We got such good videos and photos from it. Yeah. Hoping we get the same. 
So then, of course, we have the King's Speech, his second one as monarch, which he'll have already recorded. Of course. And only a handful of people will have heard what he's going to say. So it'll be really interesting. He's got a lot to reflect on, obviously. What pictures are on his desk? That's all I This is the million dollar question. (laughs) This one might be a little more upbeat as well, because obviously last year it was hinged with sadness because it was the first year since the loss of his mother. So are we expecting this one might be a little more exuberant? Look, I think so. But also there's probably an element of looking back on his first year and how Mm. it's all gone. There's going to be a lot of reflection on the coronation, I'm sure, and the big help out and all of these wonderful moments we've had and the state visits and things like that. So really has been quite a busy year for them, even though there hasn't been as much overseas travel as we might have seen in previous years from the younger members of the family. There's been a lot of readjusting going on behind the scenes. I want to go back to Christmas Day at Sandringham. I've heard that it's going to be a bit different this year and that Camilla has invited her whole family, which obviously includes her two children and her grandchildren. What do you know? Well, actually, I don't think it's the first time they've been invited. I think that they were at Sandringham last year, but they just weren't seen publicly. So it'll be really interesting to see if they actually join the royal family for the walk to church this year or if we do see them in any way publicly on the day because it's been a big year for them too you know a lot of readjusting and for the grandchildren playing quite a a big part in the coronation service itself so I'm sure it's really going to be special for her to have them there because for many years she didn't spend Christmas day with her family she would get in the car and go back down to Wiltshire to see them afterwards Mm. and that must have been really hard That must have been really hard. And she's been working really hard in the run-up to Christmas, hasn't she? She has indeed. She has this wonderful annual event, which I've covered many times, where she invites children from two charities she's patron of, Helen and Douglas House, which is a hospice, and the Roald Dahl's Marvellous Children's Charity, which provides specialist nurse for kids. And they come to Clarence House, they help her to decorate the Christmas tree, and then she serves up lunch for them. And it really is her as the matriarch, as she must be at home, as a mother and grandmother, she's dishing out these bowls of sausage and mash and pouring squash for them and attending to their needs. And she gives them goodie bags and it's just a really, Aww. really lovely event. And this year she had Santa Claus. Amazing. Oh, he good. Yeah, so it's really lovely, you know, and she says that Christmas doesn't really start until they've had that engagement at Clarence House each year. It really does set you in the right mood. I know you've tried that mash. It's good. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I know. It's very, very good. <laughs> she did once hand me a bowl of it. I think she could see I... You were hungry. <laughs> I was glad your eye on it. Now, we've obviously looked at Christmas 2023 and I want to look at the whole year now because it's been a, a big royal year. I mean... Emily, you've been working this scene for many, many years. God, that made it sound really good. Like you've been here just <laughs> many, like many, 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 many a decade. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I just, <laughs> so bad. I just want to know what have been your top three moments of the year? Oh, that is a big question. I know, it's a big one. That is really a tough one. Obviously, I'm going to have to put the coronation right in there at the top, just for sheer career highlights a moment in history being inside Westminster Abbey for that was really something I'm never going to forget so jealous it really was it was remarkable yeah I don't think I'm gonna top that in terms of one-offs you know because I'm not sure we'll see a coronation like that again with quite that degree of 
pomp and pageantry and tradition. Yeah. For me, the music was a standout. I was actually quite surprised moved. by how moved I was by it all. So that was just a brilliant, brilliant experience. I think in terms of sheer cuteness, oh. my second choice would have to be the Wales children just after the coronation at the big help out, going to help out at the local scout's hut, which was just gorgeous. And it was just seeing them in their sort of natural state yeah. in as much as they can be when there are cameras around. But it was interesting because the palace were very careful to make that as non-intimidating as they possibly could for the children they wanted it all to be very low-key and normal and it was just really fun to see them getting involved and being a tight family unit which again you know we've seen again with the baby banks outing and their christmas card and it really gives you a sense of what they're like as characters so i love that and your third and my third, again, I'm not making this all about me, but <laughs> <laughs> but in terms, again, of personal moments, highlights, it has to be being inside the Hall of Mirrors when the king made his speech during the state visit to oh, France wow. with President Macron there. And that was just a kind of really surreal pinch me moment because, and I know you know about this, Emmy, but like the history of Versailles is stunning, is yeah. absolutely fascinating. And the notion that our king was there sort of charming his host, speaking in French in a place that's so associated with the fall of a monarchy. Right. Oh, no. <laughs> really, really interesting and just very special to witness. Have you been there, Andrea? No. Oh, it, it, the uh, Palace of Versailles is incredible. Can you visit it? Like all Puts of it? Puts to shame. No, really? it doesn't really. No, no. but it is, it is, it is incredible. stunning. So, Emmy, did you have a special stand-up moment that was not from the crown? Oh, okay, right. <laughs> I do love the crown very much. I think my standout moment has to be, one of us has just got to have to say it, okay? It was Harry's memoir being released. Yes. You know, the royal family usually let you see what they want you to see. So you don't really know that much of what's going on with them personally because it's just not their brand, is it? And I genuinely found it fascinating hearing it firsthand from Harry. I thought it was really, really interesting. And what about you? So my favourite moment was seeing a lot of behind the scenes photos and videos of the royal family, especially the coronation. William and Kate hired their own photographer and videographer and they later released this incredible video showing them getting ready for the event. I just love seeing those moments because we just never see them. And I know that, you know, King Charles and Camilla also had Chris Jackson taking some incredible photos of them on their coronation. Mm. I'm sure everyone remembers the one where they're in the balcony and you can see all the crowds cheering them on. We've also seen amazing pictures when they celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day. And I just love seeing holiday pictures. We just don't see that. And actually, I love that we've seen this cake go into the baby bank with the kids because it's just really surprising. It's incredible to hear their voices. I know it's really a weird thing to say, but with pictures and events like the coronation or when they go to other places, you don't really hear them speak. You go, They go in, they go out, that's it. But yeah, the big help out that you've mentioned, you could hear them talk how they call William Daddy and or Papa and all these things. I just love it. So I'm hoping that 2024 brings more of this. I think you cheated on that question. Why? That, that was like a genie wishing for three more wishes because yeah. you said behind the scenes <laughs> moment and then listed every single royal event yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. you could possibly think of. I know, I know. There's a lot. I love, I, you know, yes. But yeah. no, you're so right. But what about the podcast, guys? Have we got any highlights from, oh. from our year with the royals? I mean, too many to 
list, surely. It's been <laughs> too many. Every we day is a highlight. Hours, but let's just keep it brief. Tell keep us, it, Emily. Keep it in brief, Emily. <laughs> uh, look, I think oh, we've had so many brilliant guests, haven't we? One thing that really leaps out at me, though, is Graham Laurie, who was the pilot oh, yes. for the Royal Family. I just found that fascinating. Yeah, he was incredible. You know, the things he saw and the places that he went to with members of the Royal Family. And I just think what an interesting life that yeah. was, but also to have been party to some really sort of quite poignant moments yeah, in the Royal yeah, Family's yeah. life. That Worth going back to listen to that episode again if you get a chance. Yeah. What about you, Emmy? Can I say two? I've got a couple. Okay. Um, so one of them was, I think, the Halloween special, the Ryan yes. Royal Ghost Story. That was that was kind of my baby because I find it quite fun to talk about, quite interesting. And the paranormal historian Richard Felix, I thought, was just so interesting. So many fun stories. That amazing one he told about William's reaction to hearing there was a ghost. Oh, the yeah. Hall. He was great to chat to about spooky, haunted royal residences. And obviously, let's not forget that... After speaking to Red, White and Royal Blue director Matthew Lopez, I've got us a cameo, cameo yes. in a potential sequel to that film. And I loved that film. Well, the so strike is over, ladies. So the call could come any moment. Now. The sag after strikes are done. And therefore... <laughs> we're ready and waiting. We are, we're we are ready, ready, waiting. To, ready we for the are call, We are available. <laughs> <laughs> and your favourite moment, Andrea, tell us. Well, this is going to sound a bit weird, but I loved finally meeting... Emily's friends. <laughs> yeah. We wanted to be in your friend group no, for a really just, long time. I followed Emily. your royal correspondent friends for so many years, you know, Roya, Victoria Murphy, Kate Mancy. And it was just incredible to have them here sitting in front of us and just hearing them tell their incredible stories, which are just as incredible, obviously, as yours. And it was just, I don't know, I, I just thought you it was... You fangirling my mates. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. yeah. I thought they were cool. If you want to invite us for a wine and cheese night, we will come. Exactly, we're we will free. come. We'll, we'll get it in the diary. Okay, well, on that note, having invited ourselves to a film sequel and to Emily's house... Yes. ...with all her Love royal it. friends, shall we introduce our first guests? Yes, please. Well, Emily and I were lucky enough to visit Windsor Castle to learn more about their incredible Order of the Garter-themed display. Because you know it's only been 675 years since it was coined, Andrea. Well, the royals are nothing if not traditional. Yes, we saw the magnificent Christmas decorations and spoke to Sally and Catherine, who are curators of the event, about just what goes into making it so special. We also found out that if you want the same sort of Christmas trees as the royal family, you might need to go into Windsor Great Park at night with a saw. Oh my God, Emmy. <laughs> we don't recommend. So, shall we hear what they have to say? Let's do that. Hello and thank you so much for joining us. We're here at Windsor Castle where we've just had an amazing sneak peek of their Christmas decorations. It's a really frosty morning here and it's definitely warmed us up with a bit of Christmas spirit, hasn't it, Emmy? It absolutely has. I'm definitely in the Christmas spirit. Now. We can't wait to share it with you. Sally, welcome to the podcast. We are so excited to be at Windsor today to look at this year's Christmas display. Can you tell us a bit about the theme behind it? So the theme this year is looking at the Order of the Garter. 2023 is the 675th anniversary of the most senior order of chivalry in the United Kingdom. And Windsor is its home. Its space is St George's Chapel within the castle walls. So it seemed like a really natural theme. And also the garter colours are this really deep blues and golds, which really lend themselves very well to the festive season as well. It's fantastic. Can you give us an idea of how Christmas has been celebrated at the castle throughout history? Are there any particularly memorable 
monarchs, shall we say, who like a good old Christmas party. I think the 19th century was really key. So Queen Victoria and Prince Albert spent every one of their married Christmases here. It's where they exchanged their gifts. It's where their children received their gifts and played with them up and down the corridors. So there's lots of wonderful accounts in her journal about gift giving and food and dining here. So that that was a really key time. Oh, wow. I mean, obviously, the decorations are amazing. We've just had a look around and it's really put us in the Christmas spirit for sure. I mean, do you have any favourites from over the years? I think my favourite actually is probably the porcelain service we've got on display this year in the Waterloo Chamber. As I mentioned, it's this garter theme. So the porcelain has this dark blue and gold on it. Um, But it's also quite an important service and some of the pieces haven't been seen in public for several decades. They've simply not been used for public display. So it's always lovely to be able to get new things out and and show our visitors. Can you tell us a bit about the history of the dinner service? Absolutely. So it was made for William IV in the early 19th century, probably before he was king. He bequeathed it to one of his children with the actress Dorothea Jordan and they later sold it and it was bought back as a wedding gift to George V and Queen Mary in 1893. So it's done this wonderful sort of journey through members of the royal family. Who had it in between them? It was still owned and still used. It's not used anymore. Actually, the porcelain recipe that this particular factory used, it's quite technical, but it now breaks relatively easily. It's 200 years old and ceramics can change over time. So it's not used anymore, but it is used for display for the Garter Day lunches here at Windsor every June. So it's something that the Garter Knights when they dine here, we'll see every year. That's really amazing. So they don't eat off these plates, but it is put on display for them. And that is, for listeners, the garter ceremony is quite a big occasion here. Um, You may have seen pictures of the royals in their long flowing velvet cloaks and the feathered caps. It's quite a spectacle, definitely one worth coming to see if you ever get a chance. I actually wanted to ask about this because I don't know anything about it. So for me (laughs) and our listeners who might not know, what is the significance of this anniversary? Like, what is it all about? So the Order of the Garter is one of several orders of chivalry and, and awards that are awarded by the royal family to people who've done amazing service for the nation. So the Order of the Garter is the most senior award you could receive. Right. So recipients have included Winston Churchill, for example. Wow. Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands, one of the late queens of the Dutch. And it's really a celebration of great service. And there's been a couple of new appointments actually this year by His Majesty as well, including Baroness Amos, who's a member of the House of Lords. So it's this lovely kind of continuing story for Windsor, really. And it's been going on for over 600 years. I mean, who was the first recipient? Who began it? Edward III founded it here at Windsor in the 1340s. And since then, there's been up to 26 Garter Knights at any one time. And actually in St George's Hall, just next door to where we're recording, each of the coats of arms of every Garter Knight since then is featured in the ceiling, as well as this year a very large Christmas tree in there as well. Lucky it's a very big room, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is a very big room. And royals love their traditions, don't they? Yes. <laughs> Over 600 years, they're nothing if not traditional. I'm also just going back to what you were saying about Victoria and Albert here, because am I right in thinking that Albert was partly responsible for bringing the Christmas tree. He was. He was responsible, I'd say, for popularising it. So Queen Charlotte, the wife of George III, was of German birth, and she brought foliage and trees inside for the first time, but her Christmases were relatively private. And it was really when an engraving of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert with a Christmas tree here at Windsor was published in the Illustrated London News that the British public decided that this was a lovely idea to be able to place gifts around it, to celebrate some decoration inside at this time of year. And that's when the popularity of the Christmas tree really began. So they were like Victorian influencers. And what would they have done on Christmas Day? What would they have eaten? 
Christmas Day was actually a lot quieter than Christmas Eve. So Queen Victoria and Prince Albert celebrated the German tradition of opening gifts on Christmas Eve. Mm. And then Christmas Day would have been a bit quieter, probably with a church service. Still a relatively large dinner, but the big dinner, the dinner we perhaps think of on Christmas Day today, they would have enjoyed on Christmas Eve. And it would have been things like turkey, perhaps swan, perhaps goose, sort of a broader range of meats and things like plum pudding. We, we would have recognised some of the tastes and the smells at the Victorian Christmas dinner. I was going to say, it seems like a lot of Christmas traditions stemming from Victorian times, for sure. Very much so. The Christmas before the 19th century in Britain was, was quite different. Still lots of revelry and celebration, but often actually New Year was a bigger celebration. Oh, really? And it was really Queen Victoria and Prince Albert that sort of shifted to what we would know today. And that's continued as well with the current royal family. They celebrate, as we know, on Christmas Eve. So here we are going right back to their German roots. Absolutely. I was curious, obviously the royal family love it here at Windsor Castle. Have you had any feedback on the decorations yet or do they ever comment on them? So the castle's obviously open to the public five days a week, but within that there are also events that will continue. The castle's, you know, an occupied rural residence. There are investitures that take place even in the room that we're sitting in here. So yeah, there will be other events taking place beyond the public opening, which we hope people will, will come to. And that's a real treat for anyone who is coming. So not only are you getting your MBE or your OBE, but you also get to see this fantastic scene. Yeah, it's really put me in the Christmassy spirit for sure. And can you tell us a little bit more about the garter-themed decorations in particular? There's a blue and gold theme. Um, is this quite different to what you've done in the past? We've tried different colours, different years. Obviously, the interiors of Windsor really do lend themselves to the festive period. We've got lots of gold here. There's lots of crimsons. We've tried purples in the past. Obviously, we're trying a sort of rich blue this year. So it's always really nice to be able to pick up on details that both reflect rural history, but also the interiors here. So as you say, this year, we're doing quite a lot of a blue colour. We haven't actually had garter star decorations on the tree before. So that's completely new and also a very large garter star on the top of the biggest tree in St George's Hall next door so that's quite fun. So how long do you have to prep for it? I mean is that a year long thing? I thought of the idea of garter in January because I knew this anniversary was coming up but really the big preparations start in July so where could we put trees? What was the feedback from visitors last year? What colours could we use? And we started to look at the porcelain service that we could put on the table and some pieces of that went to our conservation workshops in London. So that's a lovely story to be able to share these new pieces with the public. Can you tell us a bit about these pieces we've not seen before? Yeah, so some of them have been on display at Windsor for several decades, but some of the dessert stands haven't. We simply haven't had space on the public route to display them. So they went to the conservation workshops, which if you visit the castle, some of your ticket money goes towards conservation of the Royal Collection. And they were, um, they were cleaned and restored by a specialist conservator and brought back here for Christmas. So it's a wonderful story, really, that this 200-year-old porcelain service can now be seen and enjoyed again. And we're going to put it on permanent display after Christmas as well. This might be a silly question, but the porcelain service, like, how do you decide that's what you I mean do you have a like a large archive that you can sort of pick and choose from the colours were really key for me right because we knew we wanted this lovely blue and this lovely gold and we knew that that service has this really obvious motto of the order of the garter around the edges which we thought would be very striking in the Waterloo chamber mm. so there are obviously several porcelain services in the royal collection on occasion we've also used pieces of silver gilt on the Christmas table but this year we decided to go down this porcelain route and decided to stick with the sort of navy blue rich navy blue and gilt theme. It's definitely made me want to go and pull up a chair and 
tuck into some swallows. Some plum pudding. Am I right in thinking the trees as well are all from Windsor Great Park? They are. They're very local trees. So Nordman fir in the next room to us here, St George's Hall, very local specimen just from the Great Park outside. So the Crown Estate very kindly grow trees and we're able to choose from those. And there's two others within the castle as well that visitors will see that also came from the Great so 2024, Sally, what are we doing? What's the plan? Uh, I'll think about it in January. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let us know where you're up. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We are thrilled to be here today and we're going to take listeners on a little tour. So Catherine, can you tell us a bit about this incredible Christmas tree? It's amazing. Yes, so this Christmas tree comes from Windsor Great Park. It's a 25-foot tall Nordman fir, and it's decorated with an amazing 33,500 Christmas tree light. If you look right at the top, you might just see a sparkly garter star. So the Order of the Garter was founded here at Windsor 675 years ago. It's the oldest order of knighthood in Britain. So we're, we're trying to mark that a little bit with our Christmas tree decorations this year. So did you already have the star in your repertoire or did that have to be specially made? That was specially made right this year to celebrate the Order of the Garter. It's absolutely stunning. And how long does it take to dress this? Well, we have an enormous team who have come in and help us to do it because obviously it takes quite a huge team effort to get all the lights on. It's taken about three days to get everything decorated properly. And for listeners, just to give you a sense of this room, I mean, this is an absolutely vast hall, St George's Hall. And all around you've got these amazing coats of armour. And these are all from former Knights of the Garter. That's correct, yes. So it's a very appropriate here to celebrate the Garter because this is really the actual home of the Order itself. And is this where they meet each year as well? They actually meet in the Waterloo Chamber, which next door where we have the table set up. It's such a special occasion. I mean, have you been looking forward to this anniversary? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's really great to be able to celebrate it because, of course, it's so much part of the fabric here at Windsor Castle. So it's really important and it really makes it special, I think. And actually bringing it out at Christmas is quite nice. Yeah, it is beautiful. Shall we take a look at the Waterloo Chamber? Yes, I think so. Yes, shall we walk through? <laughs> You can really smell the tree as well. The same, it's so huge. It's so huge with the number of lights in it. That's always what I always think is lovely about real trees. It's the smell of all oh, I think completely straight out of the forehead. We heard you've been planning this since around July time. So have you been in the Christmas spirit for about six months now? <laughs> <laughs> well, it actually sort of being, then it suddenly creeps up on you at the last minute. You think, oh gosh, you know, we, what did we decide we were going to do? So here is the Christmas table. All set up. Oh, wow, it's amazing. We've only actually made it for 40 people, but um, did it for 40 people. <laughs> this table does extend, in fact, the whole length of St George's Hall where we've just been. So they have a lot more leaves to the table if it's needed. And you can see here, so this is obviously very Christmassy, but we have again celebrated the Order of the Garter with these special plates and this beautiful scene survey. We've heard a lot about these plates. So I'm glad to see them up close. They are. Um, so what does everything symbolise, can you tell me? It's a very decorative plate. It's very decorative. So you can see here we've got the national flowers. So we have the roses for England, the thistles for Scotland and the shamrocks for Ireland. And above is a coronet for a, a royal prince with the, the royal lion above it. And then this very deep 
blue with this motto on it. This is actually the motto of the Order of the Garter. Right. And I don't know if Sally told you, but it only qui mali pons means shame be to him who evil thinks. So it's obviously an invocation to think good thoughts and be sort of pure of mind. It's very intense dining experience, <laughs> isn't it? And how nerve-wracking was it handling Mia? <laughs> the well, well, of course, it's part of our job. So, the, you know, but we obviously we do have to be very careful with it. And uh, it's always terrifying, slightly terrifying with the table because it's got this beautiful... French polish, I thought, yeah, I can touch it. To not to damage it in any way. But uh, once the trees were on the table, we could breathe a sigh of relief and everything else was a little easier to put on. What's lovely as well is you've got these new decorations with the King's Scythe. That's right. Yeah. Oh, wow, I especially as, yeah. yeah. They, these were made at the time of the coronation and have been on sale ever since. And of course, they're perfect Christmas, so that's rather wonderful. And happily, all blue and gold as well. Exactly, so it fits really beautifully with our, which is really wonderful. So do you know if King Charles will be visiting to see the decoration? Um, I, not that I know of specifically, but of course, there will be events still going on in the castle until... Christmas Day, and so I'm sure he will be passing through at some point. He'll hope to, he'll pop in, he'll pop into his house <laughs> and check it out. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about these dessert stands? Are they? Yeah, so all this service was created especially for William the Fourth, including the dessert stands and the ice pails in the middle, and then these different shaped bowls. And they were all traditionally used for serving dessert, so it would have been different kinds of fruit. Could have even been fruit with gilding on, as you see. Oh. And then, uh, you know, other sorts of dessert pieces at this time. So in the early 19th century, it would probably... They did have mince pies for Christmas, but the royal family didn't tend to eat Christmas pudding. That was more the rest of the household would have their Christmas pudding. So. But the fruit was obviously a very important part of the dessert. Would there have been lots of courses? They dined in a very different way in the 19th century. So they would have had what we would might recognise the three courses, but they would have had... Some of the dessert would have been on the table throughout the meal. So you could, if you wanted to, have sweet and savoury together right at the beginning. So when you look at a 19th century menu, it looks absolutely overwhelming. It looks as if you're eating your way through (laughs) a wild boar and and all sorts of things. They didn't dine in the same way as we do today. They didn't have individual courses one after the other. You were given a sort of choice. And so you would only help yourself to what you could, what was within reach. So the way you laid the table was very different as well. What was the most unusual thing you've discovered that people have eaten at Christmas? At Christmas, well, they tended to always have a boar's head as uh, they did have turkey James I introduced turkey to the royal table but they often had a boar's head that was the key element some years they did have swan obviously not what we would have today and they also had fish quite a lot of fish much more than I think people would expect I always equate the, the swans with like Tudor times I know is that a thing or did fade out quite quickly in the 19th century I think you know that was very much a historic tradition I'm not sure the Queen Victoria was very keen on swan <laughs> No, no. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think in modern day and age it would be. I don't think it would be very widely accepted. (laughs) The other thing that's quite, when you look at historic menus, it looks as if they never eat any vegetables, but of course those would have been part of the dishes. They just weren't listed separately. So you don't see a lovely bowl of Brussels sprouts or your roast potatoes, as you might expect today. They're they're more integral in the kind of overall thing. So it looks as if they're eating this very... Protein rich <laughs> uh, diet, but actually it's much more varied than it reads. I and would there have been games? Would they have had the old 
Christmas quiz around the table? Oh, well, oh, that's a good question. Pintalba introduced quite a lot of Christmas traditions from Germany. We know that he did play games with the children in the royal family, so they played things like Blind Man's Buff, and I think they did sort of the hide-and-seek thing. I don't know about quizzes, I'm specifically. <laughs> but yeah, they certainly did play games. And also, we know that in the 19th century, there were some really snowy winters here at Windsor, and there are descriptions of them making snowmen and going skating on the pond down at Frogmore and going sledging. So they obviously really made full advantage of winter. Wow, looking at outside today, I wonder if we're going to get another white Christmases. When we arrived in winter today, everything was covered in frost. Very foggy. Yes. It does look rather atmospheric. It was very, yeah, very dynamic. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm really curious as to how back in the day they would heat these rooms because it's, it's a little chilly. We've got modern, <laughs> modern heat. So how, how would that work? Obviously, they did originally have real fires. Yeah, we have we do other huge fireplaces. Yeah. yeah. So that, that would have been the key way. And then they would introduce a lot of screens so you could sit around the fire and they would put screens around you so that you were to keep they kept the heat. So you, if you were sitting in a large room like this, that was a way of keeping you warm. I think they probably just wore a lot more clothes than me. Um, and one of the reasons I think that they had this very heavily protein-rich diet because they had to keep it warm. Oh, I'm so sad I missed that, guys. It looks amazing. It was amazing, actually. It was so nice. It was really special. And if you'd like to see what it actually looked like, you can head over to Hello's new Hello Royal Club, where we have a video for subscribers. It's available on Substack. Amazing. We're going we're going full multimedia. You can oh, see yeah. us, you can hear us. <laughs> <laughs> now it's my turn to be jealous about our next guest because you guys went along to the Tower of London and I missed it. So tell me, what did you do? Oh, it was so good. We <laughs> went along to see how the tower is getting ready for Christmas and talked to Charles Farris about royal Christmases through history. Let's see what they had to say. Now where are we today, Emily? We are at the Tower of London, Andrea. Oh, what are we doing here today? We are looking at their glorious Christmas decorations. And we're going to be talking to Historic Royal Palaces public historian Charles Farris all about royal Christmases throughout history here and elsewhere in London. I'm excited. I'm really excited. Charles, thank you so much for joining us on A Right Royal Podcast. We're really excited to be here at the Tower of London today. What can you tell us about how Christmas would have been celebrated here from the period when the tower's history began. Well, thank you very much for having me here today. As you can see, we're getting really Christmassy here at the tower. And actually, you might be surprised to know the royal Christmases, going all the way back to the medieval period, actually have an awful lot in common with traditions that we have today. They included feasting and lots of drinking occasionally, but also there would have been lots of games, lots of presents, giving clothes, things like that, but also going to the theatre, seeing theatre at court. So really lavish feasting. So actually, although obviously it would have felt a little bit different, a lot of the traditions of a royal Christmas throughout history had a lot in common with what we do today. It's a big party, basically. Yeah, a really big party. There are amazing uh, references to Edward I, for instance. He built large parts of the Tower of London. One of his Christmas menus included over 3,000 gallons of wine. Must have been quite a party. On that occasion, the king would have actually eaten in the Great Hall. Normally, at this period, they would have eaten in the king's chamber. But on that day, it would have been a great sort of like community celebration. Everyone would have been together. They'd probably all be dressed very smartly as well. It was a tradition for people within the royal household to get new robes several times a year, including Christmas. So they would be wearing new clothes as well. And as I said, 
some theatre, some music. And you've got to remember also that they would have been fasting in the build-up to Christmas as well. So Christmas for them lasted from the 25th for 12 days. That's where we get this idea of 12 days of Christmas. And that went back hundreds of years, even before the Norman Conquest, when, of course, the White Tower was beginning to be thought about. But then they would also then have these very large celebrations, but preceded by fasting as well. So they would have gone many weeks without eating very much at all. If they could afford it, they wouldn't have eaten meat even. But then at Christmas, they had this very large celebration meals and lots of charity associated with that to make sure that everybody less fortunate could also join in the celebrations. So no chocolate advent calendars, right? No chocolate yet. Chocolate hadn't been invented yet in this country, for want of a better word. But yes, of course, there would have been lots of food and lots of roast meats especially, but also then flavoured with things brought in from all around the world, like ginger and mace and lots of spices as well. So it would have been a very rich diet, especially for the king. And Christmas was like one of those great big festivities where they could really all celebrate together as a royal household. Amazing. And obviously, William the Conqueror is integral to the Tower's history. Am I right in thinking he was crowned on Christmas Day? Absolutely. So William the Conqueror was crowned on Christmas Day, 1066, Only a matter of weeks, or only a matter of months, should I say, since the Battle of Hastings. So by no means was his reign secure by this point. And he was crowned on Christmas Day, which shows, you know, how important Christmas Day was considered to be. The Normans were, by this point, Christian kings, having previously been pagan, of course, their Norse ancestors. But he obviously hoped to take the messages of rebirth and hope for the future associated with Christmas to his own coronation. However... Things didn't actually go completely to plan. The coronation itself, quite a few things went wrong. One of which, most famously, was during the coronation, there's something called the recognition, when all the congregation are asked, is this the person you want to be king? And everyone uh, answers enthusiastically, yes, yes. However, nobody had sort of informed the Norman soldiers outside the abbey that this was going to happen, and they were a little bit perturbed by all this noise that suddenly erupted in the abbey. And they reacted in the way that Normans tended to whenever they were confronted by uncertainty. They started to set fire to the buildings around them in order to put down any uprising that might be about to take place. And we're told that everyone in panic of all these sounds of rioting going outside rushed from the abbey, except for the churchmen and the bishops who were overseeing the ceremony and William himself, who by this point was rather cowering on the floor (laughs) um, and he finished the ceremony. But I'm surely not one that he was likely to forget. And perhaps this contributed to his feeling that he should start building castles like the Tower of London, which you see behind me, to really cement his reign in England. Amazing. So quite a Christmas to remember or to forget, really, if if your house was set on fire. (laughs) Anne Boleyn is someone else who's really synonymous with the Tower. What can you tell us about the Order of the Bath, which is being recognised in some of the decorations here? Because that's very closely connected to her, isn't it? Yes, well, as you can see, the Tower of London, our Christmas decorations this year, very much have a sort of coronation theme. And it's been an incredibly big year for us at the Tower of London. And the story of the Tower of London and coronations goes back hundreds of years. And for hundreds of years, coronations would have begun with a procession from here at the Tower of London, where the monarch would have stayed three nights before their coronation, before then processing through the streets of London to Westminster Great Hall. They would stay in vigil for another night there and the next day be crowned in Westminster Abbey. And this happened with Anne Boleyn's coronation in 1533. Henry VIII went to great efforts to make sure that the tower was looking really smart and ready for him. The Royal Palace, which was just to the south of the White Tower behind me, was prepared with new apartments for the Queen. Everything was looking very smart. The famous iconic onion domes, which we have on top of the White Tower, they were put in especially for this occasion as well. So forever altering the London skyline. And Anne's coronation 
she would have prepared here, as I said, a couple of nights before the coronation. And part of those ceremonies, as you mentioned, was the making of the Knights of the Bath. And this was sons of nobles who would have been chosen especially, probably because they were very handsome and brave and looking rather great. They were chosen to be their royal escort through the streets of London for that special coronation procession. And why they're called the Knights of the Bath is that part of their ceremony where they became knights was they were bathed ritually in the Amberlynn's reign. We told this actually happened in the White Tower itself. They were bathed in baths while they were sat in the bath, which probably was being quite cold up there, as you can imagine. They were read to by senior knights who would remind them of their duties. They were then shaved. They had their hairs cut, so they were looking rather smart. They also had to hand in their spurs to the uh, king's cook to remind them that if they broke their knightly vows, they would then have their spurs ceremoniously chopped off with a, with a carving knife by the king's cook. And then they would have a night of vigil and prayers before putting on their robes, ready to be knighted the next morning and then process as a special guard of honor with the new monarch through the streets of London. So an amazing ceremony. And that's an order of chivalry that continues to this day, right? Absolutely. So it's changed slightly throughout history, but there is still an order of the Bath, which is one of the most senior orders of chivalry. The Knights of the Garter, of course, is the most senior order. But yes, yeah, still continues today. And, and, and the Tower is very much a reminder of all these traditions. And in fact, the last time a monarch processed from the Tower of London was actually in 1661, before the coronation of King Charles II. And we are told that before he left, he had breakfast in the King's house, just there behind me, ready for his coronation the next day. Amazing. So, I mean, there's so much we could ask yeah. you. <laughs> we were really struck by the dining table yeah. Yeah. just over the way. Can you tell us about that? Well, as I mentioned before, banquets have always been a big part of royal Christmases and they have been for hundreds of years. But what we're depicting there is actually the great coronation banquet of King George IV. He was crowned in 1821. His was one of the most extravagant coronations in history. He took a real interest in every single detail. Napoleon had just been crowned and he uh, didn't want to be outdone by Napoleon. So he organized a very lavish coronation, including an amazing clothing that everyone would be wearing. And we actually have examples of dress worn at his coronation on display in the jewel house at the moment as part of the new crown jewels exhibition. And we also have some rather lavish banqueting plate and the banquet after the coronation was a long-standing piece of pageantry and theatre and it took place in Westminster Great Hall and this happened for the last time in 1821 for King George IV. It costs so much money, the equivalent of millions of pounds today, that they haven't done it quite the same since. <laughs> um, it was the last great banquet of Westminster Great Hall. The menu, as you can imagine, is ridiculous. There's an absolute plethora of roast meats and soups and pies and gravies. There were thousands of diners, even several thousand more guests just watching from the galleries above. Oh, and one of the great spectacles of this event was when the King's champion, in full armour, on horseback would ride into the banquet and challenge all the diners effectively to a fight or a duel if they dared question the authority of the king. Obviously no one did. <laughs> then got a cup as a gold cup from the king as a reward and then rode out. So that must have looked pretty amazing. I mean, I might do that on Christmas oh, Day. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. pretty amazing. <laughs> one of the things though that didn't go quite so to plan is after the king left, things really started to break down. Obviously a lot of wine had been drunk, a lot of beer had been drunk. We we're also told that it was so hot that day that people started to faint. Chandeliers on the ceiling started to rain wax down on the visitors because the drip pans had filled up. So people are fainting from the heat. They're getting rained with wax from above, molten wax. And also after the king left, 
people took this as a sign to really stop behaving at all. The people who had just been watching from above broke down and started helping themselves to the food. They were rather ravenous by that point. And they even started to take the table decorations and things as souvenirs. And in fact, the royal banqueting plate had to be locked in the chapel under armed guard to stop people from stealing it. So an amazing occasion, but didn't quite go to plan in the end. Not one to be repeated. Not one to be repeated, but it must have been pretty amazing to be there. I mean, I would love to have yeah. covered that. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> Even <laughs> if I was in the rafters. Especially as the knight in full armour comes in and challenges you over your soup to a fight. <laughs> you didn't know that was coming. That must have been pretty amazing. I'd love to hear from our listeners to see yeah. if uh, anyone managed to pull that off this I year. Know. Yeah. Obviously, the banquet was incredible. We've seen so many decorations around here today. What's your favourite or your standout? Oh, what's my favourite? Well, I mean, I particularly like all these beautiful trees that are there. It's really feeling really Christmassy. I like we've got a representation of royal processions as we come in, which is an important part of the Tower's history and our association here at the Tower of London with coronation history. But it's also got these representations of yeoman warders as well. And as you will have seen on TV, the yeoman warders from here at the Tower took part in the great procession from Westminster Abbey to Buckingham Palace after the coronation this year. So that's a really lovely reminder of how the long history of the Tower of London with coronations and how these traditions continue to this day. There are some incredible Christmas trees here today. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, the trees are absolutely fantastic, don't they? The tallest is 25 foot. The others range between 6 foot and 14 foot. They are all acquired from within Britain, so that's really great as well. They're beautifully decorated all around the Tower of London. And of course, Christmas trees are such an important part of Christmas today. I just put up my Christmas tree yesterday, so that's pretty exciting. But they are very much a sort of German tradition. Some people may think that this tradition was actually brought in by Prince Albert and Queen Victoria, and this is sort of partly true, in so much that there was an illustration of the royal family with Queen Victoria and Prince Albert and the children gathered around a Christmas tree that was advertised in the London Illustrated News in 1848. And this really sort of like propelled the fame of Christmas trees into the public eye. And people wanted to copy that idea of this Christmas tree tradition and be like the royal family. However, it was actually slightly older. It had probably come over from Germany, but earlier monarchs had had Christmas trees before. So the tradition actually goes back to Queen Charlotte, who had a Christmas tree at Windsor Castle. And we know that it was decorated with lights and candles and little presents. And then the local children of Windsor were allowed to come and choose a little present or a treat off the tree. And speaking of the Victorian era, there's going to be quite a Victorian twist at the tower, isn't there, over Christmas? Can you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. So, so many of the traditions, thanks to Prince Albert, Queen Victoria, but also Charles Dickens and things, are very much mean that Victorian Christmas is quite close to the sort of Christmas in many ways that we celebrate today. And we're making a nod to this with our celebrations here at the Tower. So as well as these amazing decorations, we're also going to have live costumed interpreters dressed in Victorian dress, including, I've told, perhaps some pickpockets. Oh, we're going to be around from, I believe, the 27th of December up until the 31st. So if you come to the Tower of London in that period, you'll see some Victorian goings on as well. But watch your purse. But watch your purse. <laughs> Now, there are over 50 families that live here. Can you tell us how they spend Christmas? Oh, well, there's so many wonderful traditions associated with Christmas celebrated here at the Tower. And of course, Christmas in many ways is all about community and family. And, that, and the Tower is no different to any other community or family in that way. So they have got lots of lovely traditions. They do 
carol singing around the various homes of the people and they raise money for charity by doing that. They also have a wonderful tradition where one of the yeoman warders each year dresses up as Father Christmas and gives a little early Christmas present to all the children here at the tower, which must be really lovely as well. On Boxing Day, they have a wiffle ball tournament with some of people from the US Embassy, which is, I think, a bit like baseball. Okay. Very hotly contested and then followed with some drinks and food afterwards but they also have some celebrations around new year's as well and on the wharf they also have meals in the clubhouse here at the tower so very much sort of traditions that you would have at home but of course in rather extraordinary surroundings amazing yes i know i know we'll have to try and score an invite yes. one year yeah, i know to, we need to go knocking on doors now <laughs> Tol, thank you so much i could talk to you about this all day right it's absolutely yes. fascinating well, that was incredibly insightful chat with Charles. It really was. And I, for one, am going to get one of my relatives on a charger to enter our Christmas dinner on horseback, I think. Yes. It's only right we should do that. I feel like we do it too low-key now compared to how they used to do it. I feel like they knew how to really get Christmas going. Absolutely. There was quite a lot of wine involved. Yeah, that's fine. We could manage uh, that. Maybe not that many gallons for me. Not a fan of the fasting before. I would do it more like January, post a good turkey. I think after that much wine, you'd be fasting <laughs> for quite a while. Well, that sounds absolutely amazing. And just to reiterate, very disappointed that I missed it. Oh, we missed you, Emmy. But you won't miss out if you head over to Hello's Royal Club on Substack. There's another video of the Tower of London. It's for subscribers only, but it's so good. Now, we are thrilled to be speaking to Leonie Elliott, a star of stage and screen who you may know best from her role as Lucille Anderson in the BBC series Call the Midwife. So it was really fitting that the Princess of Wales asked her to appear at this year's carol service, which had the theme of early childhood. Hi, Leonie, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Tell us what it was like giving that reading at Westminster Abbey. It was so special. I mean, I enjoyed the whole evening, to be honest. There were so many highlights for me. The carol singing was amazing. Michael Ward also did a reading and we had James Bay on the acoustic guitar. So I was in awe really of all the other performances and the readings. And it just felt so special to take part and read this new poem by Joseph Coilo, who wrote a poem called Growing Up. And it was all about the themes of Christmas and early childhood. So it felt really poignant and really special. And what was it like getting that call asking you to be involved in this? I suppose it was surprising in a way, but I was really happy to take part. But when I learned that it was all about early childhood and celebrating the people that look after children and those people that look after those people, so midwives, etc., I couldn't say no. Were there any nerves there, Leonie? Yeah, I think so. But I was lucky enough to do a dress rehearsal. And then, to be honest, after that, I felt quite comfortable. Well, you're obviously great, right in front of an audience and very experienced in that. Did you have a chance to meet the princess during rehearsals or after the service? Yeah, after rehearsals, I did get a chance to meet the princess briefly, which was lovely, myself and the other readers, and also the poet, Joseph Coilo. We met the princess together, which felt really, really nice. And yeah, we were speaking about it being the first time that the poem was being read and the opportunity to put my spin on the poem, which was really lovely. 
because it really is a special piece, isn't it? And the fact that it was specially commissioned for the occasion, I thought it really evoked so much about childhood memories. Was there anything in that that really leapt out and struck you? Yeah, I mean, so much of what was written was really touching. But I think particularly the bits about parents and there's a line in there that says the parents that listened and I was very lucky growing up to have those parents that listened so for me that really just um struck a chord with me really oh yeah that's so nice and it's like lovely to think as well that Kate really enjoyed it I mean did she say anything about what she thought of the poem when you met her well she said she really liked the poem and she was saying that it's a chance for me to read it for the first time without sort of looking at other people's take on the poem. So we were saying that it was really nice that I was the first person to get to read it. Oh, great. Did she mention she's a cool midwife fan, Leonie? I feel like it'd be really up her street, actually. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I hope she is. I hope she is. She didn't mention that, to be honest, but I hope she is. Maybe next time I'll ask her. She spent a lot of time with midwives. and Yeah, there were lots of them in the congregation. What do you think of the work she's doing to raise awareness of this crucial role? Because obviously in your role as Lucille, you help put midwives on the map, if you like. I think it's incredible. And when I was in Call the Midwife, I always said that, wow, what an amazing job to have. And it's so important. I mean, so much so that I've kind of considered probably for the last six months or so to qualify as a doula. So, I mean, I know it's not the same as being a midwife, but... I'd love to qualify as a doula, yeah. Going back to the carol service, was there a standout moment for you? Is there something you think viewers should really watch out for? Obviously, apart from your brilliant performance (laughs) on the night. Yeah, shameless plug, me. Um, Yeah, Uh, watch me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I think I said earlier, James Bay on the acoustic guitar was just incredible. And I was really lucky to watch him in the dress and also for the performance. I just thought it was brilliant. Well, speaking of Christmas, Leonie, like it feels so weird to have a Call the Midwife Christmas special without you in it. Are you missing it? I know. No, I am. I am. I'll, of course, be tuning in. It is really strange when you've been a part of such a special show for so long. So and this will be my first Christmas special watching it without Lucille being in it. So it will feel strange, but I'll definitely be tuning in to see what the guys have been up to. What are they doing in Poplar? Well, I wanted to ask, what is next for you? I mean, apart from training to be a doula, which is incredible. Yes. Well, there is a project that I'm working on, which I can't say too much about at the moment, which is very exciting. And hopefully maybe I can come back and talk about it when I'm allowed to. That oh, awesome. yes, please. Love that. Definitely. And do you think you'll be collaborating with the princess again in future? Oh, well, I would love to. It was for such a worthy cause and a cause that's very close to my heart. You know, I'm a trustee of a charity that does really great work with children and young people using performing arts called Diverse Voices. So it was great to take part and uh, to shed light on these people that are doing incredible work. That's right. And I think listeners will be able to watch this when the show airs. But there were quite a lot of young kids in the congregation as well, which made it really special. I think the thing that stood out for me were all the trees decorated with little teddy bears and things like that in the abbey. It really had a magical atmosphere, didn't it? It did. And I think you're right in saying that it was extremely magical. It was touching. It was inspiring. It was a really, really special evening. 
That was so good to hear from Leone. It's always lovely to hear from someone when they've been involved in something so high profile. I know. And also, I'm very pleased that I managed to sneak in a little call the midwife question there for all the fans. Are you going to be watching it this time? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really sad that she's not going to be in it. (laughs) Well, we'll have to look forward to whatever her next project turns out to be. Well, she did say that she'd come back to the podcast and fill us in. So very excited to welcome her back one day. Up next, we're delighted to share a special Christmas treat with you from one of our favourite podcast guests this year who performed both at the Coronation Concert and the Princess of Wales Carol Service last year. Take it away, Alexis French. Hey, it's Alexis French here. I'm so delighted to have been asked onto the podcast this year. And it's my absolute pleasure to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. I'd also like to play you out with my version of In the Bleak Midwinter, which I performed at a special concert in dedication to Her Late Majesty the Queen. It's featured on my brand new Christmas album, Christmas Piano with Alexis. Also out now is a composition featuring the wonderful Catherine Jenkins titled Together at Last, I Am Home. Here's wishing you a wonderful 2024 and a very Merry Christmas. everything from us today thank you so much to alexis french for ending our christmas episode with his amazing music and to you our listeners for joining us we'll be back for season three in the new year so don't forget to subscribe now in the meantime catch more from hello with our news and entertainment show the daily lowdown available on spotify apple and wherever you get your podcasts merry christmas